Hey there, listeners. Galen here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we're going to be off next week on both Monday and Thursday. So in the meantime, feel free to take a look back through our archives or check out the gerrymandering project if you want to get some background for the redistricting fights that are coming down the pike. You can search the gerrymandering project wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back on August 30th. But until then, here's a special edition of Model Talk. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I'm Nate Silver. And, and this, this is, is Model, Model Talk. Talk. But a different kind of Model Talk, Galen. It's climate edition a of different kind. Model Talk. And it's not my model. I'm, I'm an idiot about these models, but we'll ask smart and dumb questions of people who actually are experts in this area. Yes. So a little background here. Earlier this month, a group of climate scientists from around the world published the first part of what is considered to be one of the most comprehensive reports on the state of climate change. It's called the IPCC, or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment Report, and its findings were pretty grim, and so we wanted to talk about them. Total global warming is at this point at 1.1 degrees Celsius, or about 2 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels, all of which is attributed to human activity. At that level of warming, essentially, extreme weather patterns will increase in intensity and frequency over the next 20 to 30 years, basically regardless of emissions cuts made today. What happens beyond that largely depends on levels of carbon emissions going forward. And according to this report, in a best-case scenario in which the world cuts carbon emissions to net zero by 2050, the increase in temperature is limited to about 1.5 degrees Celsius. In a worst-case scenario, the world would heat by as much as 4.4 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, and that degree of warming could cause catastrophic levels of rising seas, severe weather, and human displacement. So the estimates in this report about the state of our climate today, where we're headed, and what is responsible for climate change rely on climate modeling. Now, of course, as we've mentioned, that is very different from election modeling that we often talk about on this podcast. But we're still curious how scientists arrived at these estimates. So here with both of us to talk about that today are two climate scientists and modelers who were authors of the IPCC report. Federica Otto is the Associate Director of the Environmental Change Institute at Oxford University. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Also here with us is Baylor Fox Kemper. He is a professor of Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences at Brown University. Welcome. Hi, Galen. This is the sixth IPCC assessment report since 1990. I'm curious how much our understanding of climate change and where we're headed has evolved since then, and maybe in particular since 2014, which is when the last of these reports came out. Well, the basics have not changed at all. We have known since the first report that because we are burning fossil fuels, the earth is warming, and we can see that in the increase of global mean temperatures. And we also have known that that would lead to changes in intensity and frequency of, of extreme events and sea level rise and glacier melt. But what is new now in this sixth assessment report compared to, for example, the fifth, for the first time, we have put it as a statement of fact there's absolutely no uncertainty anymore that the reason for the warming that we observe is the burning of fossil fuels from us. And we now also observe already changes in intensity and frequency of many extreme events in every region 
around the world, we also observe increased sea level rise. And you've said earlier that a lot of our results depend on modeling, on climate modeling. That is true. A lot of what we know does depend partly on modeling. But what is actually new in the sixth assessment report is that for the first time, we have combined all sorts of different lines of evidence to arrive at the conclusions we have for the different components of the climate system. So we don't know that extreme events have changed just because of climate modeling or just because of observations. But it is because of the observations we have made, because of the understanding of the basic physical processes that we have, and we also because of what we can do with climate models. And that is these combination of these different lines of evidence is something that has led to a lot higher confidence in many of the statements that we have made in, in this sixth assessment report compared to previous reports. I'll just kind of speak as a consumer. I think because in this program, we sometimes criticize experts for being not very rigorous or for being overconfident. As someone who's read a lot of IPC reports, I think people don't realize how careful they are and how precise they are. And in some sense, how cautious they are. And even in this report, they have all types of different language they use to distinguish different degrees of confidence. And so the fact that just over time, you become more confident in certain things, they're not making like a lot of big, grandiose claims. It's a report that was seen by hundreds of people and that like is very careful about what it says. And so again, if you're just haven't actually read these reports, you might not realize that as much. Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight that this report is not a scientific study. It's not a bunch of scientists doing some analysis. The IPCC is actually 195 governments across the world who have then asked a bunch of climate scientists to read all the academic literature that has been published since the last assessment report and then make, based on this literature, find out what do we know, how confident are we, what are the things where we have still gaps in our understanding? Where is the jury still out? And so by design, this is a conservative report because it's really from everything that has been published and from everything, what can we say? Where do we have evidence where everything points in the same direction? There we have very high confidence. But where things depend on how you frame the question, which models you use and so on, we have low confidence. And so this is really highlighting the things that we are very, very certain about. Yeah, so it's not only that the models have gotten better since the first report, which they obviously have, they're much higher resolutions, but also, you know, the first report was based on hundreds of studies. This one is based on over 14,000 studies. And in addition, those folks who came and read the report gave us you know, tens of thousands of review comments to work on for each chapter. So, I mean, it's an intensely, intensely carefully scrutinized report. Yeah, I was really um, impressed by the work on extreme temperatures, in part because, again, I'm saying it's like a sympathetic <laughs> outside consumer, right? But it seemed like as compared to previous IPC reports, and correct me if this is wrong, this is kind of less equivocal about which types of weather events are, if you will, like kind of the signature, right? It's kind of saying like, if you have even a relatively modest increase in warming, you're going to see, even now, extreme events like five times more often, like 50-year temperature anomalies. You get up to one and a half or two, they become very, very frequent. Can you guys talk more about how those are calculated? 
and I assume that matches up pretty well with observational data where we have good data, correct? Yes. So I think what this report, I think for the first time, makes very clear is that while climate change affects all sorts of extreme weather events, it's an absolute game changer when it comes to heat waves and hot extremes. So we see everywhere in the world an increase already in heat waves. So we have more heat waves, longer heat waves and hotter heat waves. And while we also see in many parts of the world an increase in heavy rainfall events, there we see maybe a doubling at current levels of of warming. And it's also not everywhere in the world. But for heat waves, we see the exact number of how much more likely a heat wave gets depends on how you define a heat wave. So the sort of the headline numbers that are given in, in the summary for policymakers are based on a measure that's called TXX. So if you take the maximum temperature in every year in every grid point, that is the, the measure you, you look at, that has by now increased approximately by a factor of five. But when you think about a heat wave as you experience it, it's rarely... TXX that you experience at sort of a grid point level of a model personally, because heat waves that we experience are usually on slightly larger scales and they last for maybe a week or so. And so we have assessed a lot of publications on individual heat waves where scientists have looked at how has the likelihood of these kind of event changed. And we see there are heat waves like the one last year in Siberia, that has basically been made more than 600 times more likely because of climate change. And there are some European heat waves that also have been made hundreds of times more more likely. So the exact numbers depend on how exactly you look at the heat wave, so how exactly you define it. One thing that stuck out to me in this report and in reading more current climate science is that Historically, the conventional position was that while we know that climate change and carbon emissions are increasing the frequency of extreme weather events, you can't point to one particular extreme weather event and say, oh, climate change caused that. It seems like that's changing and that increasingly scientists are feeling comfortable saying, yes, climate change caused that extreme weather event. And I know also, Nate, this is something that you've written about in The Signal and the Noise, your book. You looked at climate modeling and and how we come to conclusions about these things. So why has this changed? Why are we now able to say that a particular extreme weather event is caused by climate change? Well, I think it's important to highlight that what we mean with causing here is like, Climate change has caused a particular weather event in the same way that smoking causes cancer. So it's not causing in yes or no. A lot of journalists always ask, is this weather or climate change? And that, of course, is the wrong question to ask because all weather events are happening in a changed climate. But some, and heat waves are the ones that change most strongly, are made more likely and more intense because of climate change. And others are made less likely or less intense, like cold waves. And for others, again, they don't change very much. And so the way we look at this is we find out, okay, what is the heat wave we are interested in? Is it is it the hottest day of the year, so this TXX measure in a grid point, or is it actually three-day average temperatures in July in Pacific Northwestern US? Then having found this definition, we then ask, looking at observations and statistical modeling and also climate models, what is the likelihood of this event that we've just defined 
a heat wave, three-day average temperatures above a certain threshold we've just experienced in today's climate. Is it a one in 100 year event? Is it a one in 10 year event? And if we have enough observational data and have climate models that are able to simulate this type of event reliably enough, then we can say we can find out. So in the world with today's level of greenhouse gases and 1.1 degree of global warming, it's a one in 10 year event. And because we know very well how many greenhouse gases have been put into the atmosphere since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We can take these out of the atmospheres of climate models and then ask the same question again, this heat wave that we've just defined, what's the likelihood of this event to occur in the world that might have been without climate change, so without the additional greenhouse gases? And in that case, it might have been that this was a one in a hundred year event in the world without climate change. And because the only thing that's different in these two worlds is the additional warming from climate change, we can attribute the change to climate change and can say climate change has made this event 10 times more likely. We can't do this well for the types of events where we do have observational data and where we have climate models that are able to simulate these types of events. So heat waves works well, larger scale heavy rainfall events works well. If we have the right models, we can also look at rainfall associated with hurricanes, some types of droughts, depending on the region and the world. But for other things like hailstorms or tornadoes, we can't do this because we don't have the data and the tools. Yeah, and I think sea level, you know, extreme sea level events is a particular example of that as well. We can say that a one in a hundred year event becomes a once per year event, assuming that other things that we don't do well, like hurricane intensity, stay the same as they are now. Even though we think it will get stronger, we're pretty sure that that's something the models don't do well. So it's adding together the pieces on top of each other to get a better sense of the extreme event probability changes. Yeah, one thing as kind of a media critic, I'd say too, it seems like Five or 10 years ago, there was a lot more discussion about hurricanes and the attribution of hurricanes, which to my eyes creates two issues. One is that hurricanes are somewhat uncommon events, so there's like more stochasticity. It'll take longer to find a signal. And two, again, if you read this latest report especially, the report is more confident about heat-related anomalies. And so it seems like scientists were not fighting their most persuasive battle if they are worried about hurricanes as opposed to heat waves. One question I have is about forest fires. That's a big discussion point in the US, obviously. How confident can or should we be that these heat extremes are causing forest fires? Whether or not a forest burns depends on many things that have nothing to do with the weather. It very much also depends on forest management. Is there actually fuel to burn and so on? But of course, there's also a big weather component in forest fire, there needs to be weather conditions that are conducive to forest fires. And this is a combination of high temperatures, low humidity, and strong winds. So you can define indices or an index that combines these three ingredients of fire weather, and then you can use models to simulate fire weather conditions or fire weather risk, if you like. And for many parts of the world, actually models do a relatively good job in simulating this fire danger or this fire weather index. And 
because a big component of that is temperature. Humidity and winds don't seem to be changing very much, but temperature is changing a lot. And just because of this temperature component alone, you do have an increase in the risk of forest fires in many parts of the world. I think the uncertainties are a bit higher than when you look at just temperature alone, but it's definitely that we have more confidence now and actually quite some different lines of evidence look at different parts of the world, done different studies, different models. Yeah, I mean, if you take hurricanes, they're similar in that we know that a warmer ocean gives the potential to fire off a hurricane and, you know, changes to the wind shear above also affects the way that hurricanes form. But even when we go to do a regular weather forecast, those models are not sufficiently high resolution to do a good job with hurricanes. So we split off to a special hurricane model, which is run just when we're watching a hurricane. So the climate models are not even as fine as the weather models in terms of their resolution. So they don't do a great job on representing the hurricane directly, but the conditions conducive to hurricanes, they actually do a a pretty good job on that. And then things like ocean acidification is really straightforward from a large-scale modeling perspective. And that part, the climate models do directly, and there's relatively little noise in that signal as the ocean just takes up more and more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So it depends a lot on what risk you're looking at or what hazard you're looking at before you can decide whether these models are directly going to be able to address the problem or whether you have to use kind of a hierarchy of models to get at different aspects of the problem. This is a really basic question. What all goes into climate modeling? How much data do you need? Because in reading a little bit about this before talking to you, I read, according to Carbon Brief, that a typical global climate model contains enough computer code to fill 18,000 pages of printed text and takes lots of scientists and the computer can be the size of a tennis court. What are we talking about here when we say a climate model? So this is an important distinction between the climate models and the kind of models that normally get talked about on Model Talk, which is a climate model is a first principles physical model in its basic essence. What is that? So we take the laws of physics and we put them together in that many thousands of lines of code, many millions of lines of code, and that's what it is. We don't specifically initialize it to today's weather, so it's not like a weather model in that sense. And we run an ensemble of the models to kind of span the space of all possible weathers that are within our physical understanding. Let me me get this right. So you recreate all the physical conditions of the globe in code as your starting point. Everything we know about physics. So atmosphere, ocean, land, ice, sea ice, land ice, you know, biogeochemistry, all together in code. To break that down a bit to the principles behind it. So we divide the world in components. So we have the atmosphere, we have the ocean, we have the land surface, we have the ice. And each of these components, they follow the laws of physics, if we just stick with the atmosphere for now. So to describe the atmosphere, you ultimately want to know how every bubble of atmosphere is moving in time, depending on the incoming solar radiation and greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere and what comes from the other systems, so the ocean and the land and so on. That's what you ultimately want to know. And you can describe that by the three basic physical principles. So the conservation of energy, the conservation of mass, and the conservation of momentum. 
And so you have physical equations that describe this conservation laws of physics for each point in the atmosphere that you resolve in your model. And you don't do that for every possible point, but just for different grid points in the atmosphere. The incoming, so the external forcings, which is solar radiation, that is what is external to the model, what the model doesn't create itself. Yeah, it's the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, but everything else the model calculates itself. So the temperature and the pressure in every time step of the model, these things are calculated. So you don't put observational data in there. I'd argue it's kind of a, a spectrum rather than an absolute that election models do have some hard parameters. For example, in our model, we know you can only get between 0% and 100% of the vote. So the way you build that structurally, if you build a really good model, will not let you predict that Biden will get 102% of the vote in Washington, D.C. or something. We know that the electorate is made up of individual voters who probably have correlated preferences. But like the physics and chemistry of global warming have been understood for a long time. And that's much further down the spectrum of like, models where you have like a good reason based on theory and observations and literally like the physics of the atmosphere to encode a model a certain way. And that doesn't solve every problem, but it solves a lot of problems. Yeah. I mean, we think we know the right equations if we could afford the tiny little bubbles, as Freddie put it, at small enough scales. But we can't afford that right now with present day computing. And so that's the key limitation from just having the physics that we know, the physics we can measure in the lab versus the way these models work. They are chunky versions of the fluid dynamics equations. And that chunkiness has a few things left out. And so we try and put those processes back. So things like the way the clouds behave, the way the clouds inter interact with pollution, those kind of things had to be built back in because it's too small to be directly resolved with today's supercomputers and will be too small for the whole projected timescale we're talking about. This isn't like we can wait another 10 years and it'll be done. I mean, the ocean, we won't be at that level of re resolution till about 2250 if computers keep increasing at the rate of speed they're re increasing now. You know, the Earth is really, really big. Out of curiosity, how long does it take to run this kind of a model? For a single scenario, order of weeks on many hundreds of processors, um, if you want to run a high-resolution model, it could be months, and it could be many thousands or tens of thousands of processors. There are climate models that you can run on your laptop, but they are really, really stripped down. So the ones that we're talking about here are many, many massive, massively parallel machines running for many, many hours on top of there being many machines working together. But I think it's important to highlight that we also we don't need to wait for this super high resolution model of where we can resolve all the physics in order to know enough to make decisions. For most aspects of the climate system, well, for a lot of things we have known enough 30 years ago and could have made uh, decisions accordingly. So we don't have to wait for everything to be perfectly resolved to have a good grasp of how things are changing under different scenarios. Absolutely. That's why the breakthroughs in this report have a lot to do with regional changes and extreme events, because as our models are getting better, we're able to touch things that are smaller and more extreme by running larger ensembles and by having extra computer power. But the top line is the same as it was in the first assessment report, 
what the basic behavior of the model is. It doesn't even take a model as complicated as that to find out what the top line behavior of the climate system would be. Something we talk a lot about on this podcast is uncertainty, which is a topic I want to talk about when it comes to climate modeling. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. In putting together this report, as we've mentioned already, it gets a lot more specific and a lot more conclusive than the past reports that the IPCC has put out. What are the biggest sources of uncertainty here? And how wide of a range of outcomes does that mean that we're looking at? So what we've been talking about so far is largely the model uncertainty, which is one piece of the story. You know, are the models a perfect representation of the Earth? No, certainly not. Are they pretty good? Yeah, in a lot of ways for particular measures, sure. But the other uncertainties we have is natural variability. And so one of the reasons why this report is much stronger is because we've got 1.1 degrees of warming rather than 0.5 degrees of warming that there was in the first report. And so the signal has just emerged more from the natural variability than we thought at the time for the first report. And then the last piece is the scenario uncertainty, which is like, what are humans going to do? That's one of the biggest parts of the uncertainty. And that's not really up to working group one, which is, you know, our team that worked on this part of the report to decide among those choices. So we essentially say the span across the scenarios considered is our representation of that uncertainty. We don't try and read into the psychology of what humans will do over the next 50 to 100 years in terms of emissions. And I think there is also the sampling uncertainty, which is especially important for extremes and which is one reason why we are now so much more confident on everything concerning extremes is that we now can run climate models, not just once or twice or 10 times so that you have 10 realizations of possible weather. But now we have thousands of realizations of possible weather under given climate conditions. So we have a lot more data to look at at extremes that are by definition rare. And so that is why localized extreme weather events and attribution of weather events and also projections of weather events have become a lot less uncertain because we just have this much more data. And of course, we have just also now, well, even since the last report, we have almost 10 years more of observational data. And so we have seen 10 more years of extreme weather, of weather in a changing climate. So the signal is is emerging more. Yeah. And we have new kinds of observations as well. So not only do we have a longer record, but you know, there's a robot fleet of drifters that's profiling temperature and salinity all through the world oceans now. And that really only got together in about 2005. So we have, you know, a 15-year record of that. And we have 
direct monitoring of the overturning circulation in the Atlantic, which is a relatively new instrument array. So we have a few years of that. But as we go on, we're getting better and better at monitoring the key processes around the world that's locking it down. So the records are getting longer and our instruments are getting better. So we have multiple reasons to be more confident in what we observe now. Looking backwards over that longer period of time, what's the track record of the climate models that scientists were working with decades ago? Have they been accurate? Yes. Yeah. Within the changes that have to do with things like volcanoes that were unpredicted or different scenarios, which maybe were too much emissions or too little emissions, they're spot on for the large scale metrics. How do you go back and judge? Because obviously we're looking at a bunch of different scenarios and there are different modelers creating different potential futures. How do you judge the effectiveness of a climate model? Well, so the the easiest way is just to look back at what were the projections of climate models 20 years ago, how temperatures would change with certain greenhouse gas emissions, and then just see what these models projected, and then see which of the projections, the greenhouse gas scenarios they used, was closely followed by reality, and then just see how what temperatures were projected and how did they observe. And that is what has been done. And it touches a little bit on what the difference between a climate model and a weather model is too. So we wouldn't expect the observations to match exactly with a climate model. We would expect an ensemble of climate models to include the observations. And so we have a spread of an ensemble spread and the observations should stay inside that ensemble spread in whatever metric you're looking at in order for us to think that the climate models as a group do a good job, because there's always this underlying natural variability of the weather and climate variability of things like El Nino to contend with. One thing I'd add when you ask a question like, have the climate models been accurate in the past? I mean, there are a lot of climate models by a lot of different groups that were put out at a lot of different times, and there are a lot of different ways to evaluate them. And so you can find examples of predictions that overpredicted warming and some that underpredicted warming. Also, as the signals become clearer, right, when I wrote my book in 2012, that had been after a couple of relatively cool years and since 2012. I don't want to use the term hockey stick, but you've seen very rapid, a number of very, very warm years in a row, right? And so if you're kind of like reading the literature from 10 years ago, it might say, well, these climate models seem kind of directionally right, but maybe they were a little too aggressive. And that isn't necessarily true anymore after nine or 10 more years of data. Yeah, there was a long period from a very big El Nino in 1998 up until another one in 2016 that the Earth was not warming as fast as a lot of the climate models were doing. It never really left the ensemble of possibilities, but it was doing something very unlikely for a while. And so there was a lot of discussion about that. But then at the end of that window, it you know, bounced back, things started warming again, and it fell much more closely within the normal range of behaviors. That's exactly what you'd expect if you're watching a system that has lots of variability in it. Sometimes it's going to do something funny and for a while, that dominated the discussion of whether climate models were any good or not, because none of them were hanging around for those particular years. And that's why, you know, we always talk about decadal temperature changes or multi-decadal temperature changes is precisely because those pieces come from that chaotic part of the system that we can't really predict. We can only put an envelope around them. So I want to put all of this data and modeling into 
the broader context, which is maybe equally important, you know, getting a sense of where we are and where we're headed is great. But I imagine that, you know, you're all focused at some point on how the public reacts to the studies that you're doing and the information that you're putting out into the world. Do you think that as it's become clear that climate models are doing a good job and as you can become more precise about the effects of climate change, that the world is following suit, that publics in different countries, that leaders are like paying attention to this data and evolving themselves or reacting themselves? It's interesting to compare to weather models, which are unbelievably better than they used to be. So it wasn't so long ago, just in the 70s, when a weather model couldn't do better than the weather tomorrow will be the same as it was today. And the weather models actually did worse than that. So now we sort of believe in weather models, but people still gripe about the weather report being wrong or, oh, you know, they didn't say it was going to rain on my wedding day or whatever. All of those things are part of the public perception side and climate models, the same goes for that. But I do think that as we get more regional perspectives and are able to say, you know, in your particular part of the world, not the global mean temperature, that I think that if those results are actually pretty accurate, then we will gain more support and that these models are worth doing. You know, it's a lot of scientific effort. It's a lot of computational effort to make these projections. So we need to show that something useful is coming out of them. So that part of it, I think, will be stronger as we get down more toward the human scale or the you know national scale rather than the global scale only. Yeah, and I would say that a lot of the conversation has changed with actually the ability to say more about extremes and many extremes happening recently. I wouldn't necessarily say that there has been a ton of action following that you might expect to happen, but I think the conversation has definitely changed a lot. So when I started to do this 10 years ago, I had lots of conversations with climate deniers. That very, 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 very rarely happens now. Now, there's a much, much broader acceptance that climate change is a fact and that that is happening and that that is also affecting extreme weather, especially after, for example, the heat wave in Canada and Pacific Northwest that were then suddenly, oh, climate models totally didn't predict this. Climate models are not able to simulate the events we are seeing, which is not true. So they are not systematically underestimating or overestimating heat extremes. But you have to ask the models the questions. Not every possible event has been looked at and we don't have projections for all sorts of possible combination of extreme weather that has strong impacts. And I think that's something that is actually just about to start to change because for the longest time we have made projections on the stuff that comes easily out of a model. So it's temperature, it's the hottest day of the year or the wettest 99% in every grid box. But of course, the kinds of events that lead to large impacts in the real world is usually a combination of these variables. So it's hot and dry in an area that has high population and lots of agriculture and therefore leads to lots of damage. Or it's a combination of heavy rainfall with storm surge and sea level rise. And so all these things that usually the projections look at separately are happening in a combination in the real world. And it's these compound events that lead to the damages that make the big headlines. And I think we are only now starting to learn 
how can we actually make projections of these type of things that our societies are so vulnerable to? Yeah, I mean, Superstorms Dandy is often taken as an example of a climate impact, but it also, you know, it hit landfall in the New York and New Jersey area near high tide. So the high tide part, we could have predicted 10,000 years in advance, but that that was when the storm arrived, that's the compound event that made it particularly damaging in that part of the East Coast. Yeah, some of this sounds familiar to like, if you make a bunch of forecasts of the NCAA tournament, the basketball tournament, people are like, well, that game had only a 2% chance of an upset. You know, you guys are really wrong. And you're like, okay, well, if you go from having like a 0.1% chance of extreme weather like that in the Northeast to a 1% chance, that's a big deal, right? It's a tenfold increase. It still doesn't mean you would predict that a priori necessarily, but collectively you can notice the impact. So as you said, you're the scientists who are kind of charged with describing the world as it is. There will be subsequent pieces of the IPCC report that look at other things as well. But as the scientists here, what do you hope people take away from this report? So I think there are a few bad news in this report. And one we've talked about a lot, which is that every region of the world is already seeing changes in many extreme and other climate events. So climate change is here. It's not something of the future. And there are also one of the things we haven't talked about, which this report explicitly highlights are so-called low likelihood, high impact events. So we cannot exclude that some tipping points, like for example, the Atlantic Meridional circulation is getting so weak that it will break down at some point or things like die back of the Amazon rainforest. We cannot exclude that we have already tipped the climate to reach some of these points. And I think this is also really important, what I would hope is a takeaway. There are some really good news in this report. And the good news is that the likelihood we think that these tipping points have been tipped is pretty low right now and will also continue to be at low warming levels of 1.5 degrees or so. And also what this report says, what I think is really good news is that what we now know is that if we stop emitting CO2. So if we reach net zero CO2, then the world will actually stop warming further. So there are some other impacts like sea level rise and glacier melt that will continue to increase and continue to happen. But the global mean temperatures will actually stop rising and the associated extremes as well. So that means it's really in our hands right now to stop a lot of those worst case things from happening and to slow down sea level rise and glacier melt and some of these slow changes. So the bad news, we really have to adapt to changes already now. But the good news, we can mitigate the worst from happening. To me, I find it refreshing that the IPCC report is not chock full of policy recommendations, right? Because these are recommendations that entire societies and governments have to make, and and that's complicated. <laughs> and there are kind of trade-offs and resource constraints and behavioral constraints or whatever else. But like, again, obviously we're dealing with other crises on the planet, like COVID, for example. And that's a case where you kind of see like the policy recommendation and the science, quote unquote, all fused together. I find it a lot more helpful when you have a neutral, unbiased, very thorough summary of the best scientific evidence we have. And then the next conversation 
is about policy, not because it's a less important conversation, but because like it's good to have the pure science and then be able to make the best decisions you can or cannot with it. So that's another reason why like I'm a big unabashed fan of like the IPCC process. The pandemic is a really interesting case, and there's actually some discussion of that within the IPCC report, which is, you know, everybody stopped doing everything, and how much carbon did that slow? And it's not as much as you might have hoped. It's only about 7% reduction in 2020 versus 2019. Um, And then things have surged back up, and we think we're going to be higher than 2019 this year. And does that have a measurable impact on climate change? And the answer is not really. In fact, actually, some of the feedbacks, the ocean released a bunch of carbon backwards. But some of the things that we thought would happen did happen in response, which talks about how difficult it is to do this. It's not a one-year thing. It's a sustained multi-decadal reduction in emissions. And so while we know that some of these changes are in motion and are going to happen no matter what, there's pretty much nothing we can do about 2050 sea level rise. It doesn't matter which emission scenario we're on, it's going to be about nine to 11 inches. When we get to 2100, there's a huge difference. And when we get to 2300, there's a massive difference, you know, multimeter differences between whether we emit a lot between now and then or not. And so that side of it is the physical reality, which grounds the decision-making and puts the nature is healing aspect of the pandemic or whatever in the right context of all these challenges, exactly how difficult they are from a policy perspective, without saying what the policies are. That's the goal. All right, well, let's leave things there. Thank you, Frederica and Baylor, for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. This is a dream of mine. (laughs) Yeah, same here. I never read nonfiction books, but I have read The Signal and the Noise, so. (laughs) A, A little flattery before we leave. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. I was slightly disappointed that we didn't get to say this is model talk together with you, though, because that's like, oh, that's so cool. We can do it. (laughs) Well, here you go. Our closing credits are right here. That's it for uh, this version of model talk. I'm Galen Druk. I'm Nate Silver. I'm Baylor Fox Kemper. I'm Freddie Otto. And And this this was was model talk. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Wow. We did it. Federico Otto is the Associate Director of the Environmental Change Institute at Oxford University. Baylor Fox Kemper is a Professor of Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences at Brown University. They're both, of course, climate modelers who are authors of the recent IPCC report. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.